Today is Palm Sunday, and there's two reasons why that's important. It's a, a great honor for me to be here because about 19 years ago on a Palm Sunday, I was baptized uh, right over there. As a little boy, I was seven years old, and it's amazing to me to think about what God has done in my life to bring me from a seven-year-old knucklehead to a 26-year-old knucklehead. Um, so amen, that's right. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but it is good to see, uh, and just I'm grateful to be able to be here to study God's word with you. But it's also uh, a really important day for us in the life, um, of the, in the life as a Christian. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the, the, the day that marks the beginning of what we call Holy Week, the week where Jesus would come into Jerusalem, heralded as this Messiah King, but who would be ultimately crucified on a criminal's cross at the end of the week for our salvation. Uh, and so I, I thought it would be fitting that we begin our time of studying God's word this morning by going back and looking at that very moment in John chapter 12, uh, where the, the people of Jerusalem, they were singing praise uh, about Jesus, this Messiah. In John chapter 12, we read this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna is a, a cry of salvation. It means, Lord, please save. God, save us. It's a combination of the Hebrew words yasha and ana. Yasha means deliver or save. Ana means I, I beg or I beseech you. Again, it's a, it's a plea of salvation. And on this first Palm Sunday, all the way back when Jesus first entered into Jerusalem, it, it was a cry of salvation from the Romans. The, the people of uh, Jerusalem were crying out to Jesus. They were hoping that he would be a physically conquering king, one who would save them from the Romans and would establish this great, glorious, world-dominant kingdom that, that the people of Israel understood in the Old Testament uh, to be the kingdom that, that Jesus was bringing, the Messiah was bringing. But that was not the kingdom that Jesus was going to bring, at least not his first coming. Jesus was coming in to bring a spiritual kingdom. He was coming to bring the kingdom of God. And that's what we've been talking about this, uh, this whole year. That's our theme for the year is the kingdom of God. And what we've been doing in this series is tracing the, the, the kingdom of God throughout the storyline of the Old Testament. And I want to remind you what the kingdom of God is. It's the governing authority of Jesus over powers, people, and places for God's praise according to the scriptures. Simply put, the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of Jesus. God's kingdom is a kingdom that transcends borders and boundaries it's a kingdom that grows in us and through us. And in us and through us, it's growing into the world. And this morning, uh, we're going to reach the end of our study of the Old Testament, tracing that kingdom's development in the book of Malachi. So I invite you to go ahead and flip with me there to the book of Malachi. Today, we're going to read the last words of the last book of the last prophet in the Old Testament. And we're going to do so a little bit with one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New Testament. Because we're going to read about a people who are longing for this Messiah to come. They were seeking for this Messiah. And then for us today, as we seek and as we await for our king to return again. So I'm going to have Miss Adele come and read it for us. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. And if you would, stand with us in honor of God's word as we read this together. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Before. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with, with a decree of utter destruction. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Thanks, Adele. 
So for a little bit of context, uh, Malachi is, like I said, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and uh, many commentators call him the capstone of the prophets. In, in Malachi's message, in the book of Malachi, we really see echoed all of the, the other prophets that came before him in his message. And what's important for us to know about the context of the spiritual context of what's taking place in Jerusalem at this time is that the Nehemiah project has failed. So you remember what we talked about last year as we studied the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was sent back to Jerusalem by God to rebuild the wall. The people during this time had, had a, a belief of sorts that if they just had the right things in place, if they just had the right structures, if they just had and did the right rituals and did the right things, that it would fix the brokenness within them. Just if we had the right temple, if the temple was built, that would fix us. Well, that's what they did in Ezra, and it didn't work. And then they thought, well, if we just build the wall back, well, then that'll, that'll fix us. They did that in Nehemiah, and it didn't work. And they thought, if we just do the right rituals, if we just go through the motions of doing the right things, then we'll be fine. That's what we find in Malachi. But what we find in the book of Malachi is that doing the right things, having the right structures, none of it can fix the brokenness that's within. And the book of Malachi takes place about 100 years after the people of God have returned from captivity in Babylon. And their spiritual health is the exact same as it was before captivity. The same things that led them into exile were the same things that now characterize the people of God again in the land that God had given them. The people were faithless and they worshiped false idols. The priests were wicked and they dishonored and desecrated God's temple. The, the people of God were just as far from God on that side of the exile as they were before the exile. But even in the midst of such widespread spiritual uh, turning away from God, there was a faithful remnant and there's always a faithful remnant. God always has a faithful remnant of those who are his. And this morning in, in, our, in God's word, we're going to see a message to that faithful remnant. It's a message of encouragement to continue to seek after God. And it's an important message for us this morning too. As we are God's faithful remnant, we're a people that have been purchased by the blood of Christ. A people that are still to continue to seek God as we await the day that our king returns. And as we're talking about seeking God, when I say seek God, I think it's important that we understand what that term means. And here's a definition that, that I want to give you as to what it means to seek God. It's that we're making a conscious choice to set our hearts towards God. So seeking God means I'm, setting, I'm making a conscious choice to set my heart towards God. Or like we just sang about in that last song, to fix my eyes on Jesus. I'm going to make a conscious choice to do that. And in our text this morning, we find a few ways that uh, the people of God were encouraged to seek God. So if you want to take some notes this morning, you can make a note of this first. That citizens of the kingdom of God seek God by remembering the word of God. That we seek God by remembering his word. You know, Malachi 4, 4 through 6 are the last words of the Old Testament. And there's been a lot of famous last words in the course of human history. Now, there's some funny famous last words. Uh, Oscar Wilde, he was a poet, and, and he uh, was having a debate with the wallpaper. Uh, I think he was going a little crazy. But he said, either the wallpaper goes or I do. We both can't stay. It's a funny last word. Some sweet last words. Vince Lombardi, the great coach, the football coach, to his wife, he said, happy anniversary. I love you. There's some memorable last words. Uh, Sam Houston and the people at the Alamo they said, remember the Alamo. That's one that we're all familiar with. There's some sad last words. Chris Farley, as he was dying, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. The beginning of the last words that the people of God would hear from God under the old covenant 
for about 400 years started here in verse 4 with a command. And this command says, remember the law of my servant Moses. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. There's a growing belief in uh, some denominations and some Christian circles that, that we as modern-day Christians need to unhitch from the Old Testament. There's actually a, a fairly well-known pastor who actually used those words, and we need to unhitch and detach from the Old Testament. And the logic is, well, you know, the, the Old Testament has some stories that, that aren't really relevant to us anymore because now we have Jesus, or, or, or those things in the Old Testament that, you know, I don't really understand. It doesn't make sense to me why God would do this thing. I, I just follow the New Testament. Why do we have to pay attention to the Old Covenant when we have the words of Jesus? The God of the Old Testament is nothing like the God of the New Testament. This is the logic. And it's if we un, unhitch or detach from the Old Testament, well, then Christianity becomes more palatable. And for a number of reasons... Detaching from the Old Testament, unhitching from the Old Testament would be a foolish decision, a foolish choice. And we could spend all day talking about that, but I want to give you two uh, quick reasons as to why that that would be a poor decision. And the first one is because of what we see in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God's Word, that everything in the Bible is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Look again with me at verse 16, the beginning of it. All scripture is breathed out by God. So does that mean that even the parts that are hard to understand, that's breathed out by God? Yes, it does. Does that mean that even the parts that are hard for us to wrap our minds around, or maybe that we disagree with, or we have a hard time believing, is that God's word? Yes. Even the parts that are hard to obey? Yes. If it is in the Bible, it is from God. What Paul says there in 2 Timothy 3.16 is that Scripture is breathed out by God. The, the Greek word is theopneustos. Theos meaning God, theos meaning God, and neustos is breath. Just think about like pneumonia, it's breath. Theopneustos, it is breathed out by God. So if it is in the Bible, it is breathed out by God. It's been inspired by God, and it has a purpose. Paul tells us that it's profitable. And he tells us that it's profitable to the end that we, as the people of God, may be complete for every good work. That term for complete in the Greek uh, carries a, a pretty cool meaning. It, it, it really conveys the idea that we are fully outfit for service, that we'd be fully prepared for service to our great king. So if we are to be the people of God that are fully outfit for service to our great king, does it make sense or can we detach from the Old Testament? The Old Testament contains 39 books of the Bible. It contains 929 chapters, which make up 23,154 verses. That's 74% of the Bible is found in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not a mathematician. I study the Bible, and I'm not very good with numbers. But, but I know that that is a huge percentage. It means that almost three-fourths of what God has revealed to us about himself, his plan for the world, his plan of salvation, is, a part of the, is in the Old Testament. So if we detach from that, we cannot be a complete people that are outfit for every good work, for service to our great king. So we can't detach from the, the Old Testament. The second reason we can't detach from the Old Testament is because the understanding the Old Testament helps us to understand and appreciate the New Testament. It helps us to appreciate what has happened. I want to show you a, a visual representation of the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
I think this graphic is beautiful. I love to look at all of the connections, and I wish that we had more time to show you and to draw the lines of all the different dots of how these things are connected. There was a theologian, his name's Carl Henry, who, who looked at uh, things like this and studied the Bible and found 295 either paraphrased quotations or explicit quotations in the New Testament that are from the Old Testament. So, every, so one out of every 22 or 22 and a half verses in the New Testament is a direct quotation of or a paraphrase of something that happens in the Old Testament. Add in the allusions and the references of stories, it gets even higher than that. So if we are to be a, a people that um, understand really and appreciate what God has done for us, we have to know the Old Testament. We have to know what the Old Testament says about the character of God and the promises of God and what God has done and what is required for a sacrifice for sins. In Hebrews 9.22 tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The, the death of Christ doesn't make sense without understanding the sacrificial system. We have to know the Old Testament in order for us to be able to appreciate what God has done in the new. I've heard people say it this way, that our exaltation of God can only go as deep as our knowledge of God. So, so if we have a very shallow, very thin understanding of what God has done in the Old Testament, then our understanding of what he's done for us in the New Testament will also be very shallow. But if we understand what God has done in the old and how that fits in with the new, then we will understand what God has done in the great story of scripture and our exaltation of God will be as deep as is our knowledge of him. But what God was specifically commanding this faithful remnant in Malachi's day to do was to remember the Mosaic covenant. He says, remember the words of my servant Moses. He's referring to the Mosaic covenant that was given at Mount Sinai or Horeb all the way back in Exodus chapter 19 through 24 in that range. God gave Moses the, the Ten Commandments and other laws that outlined the relationship between God and his people. And the relationship was based on covenant faithfulness that was mediated by a law. That phrase mediated by the law is an important thing for us to know. So if the people of God obeyed the law, then they received God's blessing. They lived long in the land. They were prosperous. God protected them from their enemies. But if the people of God disobeyed the law, then they experienced the, the consequence of their rebellion. And we spent the last few weeks talking about those consequences. Exile in Babylon was one of the consequences of their disobedience. But it was a, a relationship that was mediated by the law. If you obeyed the law, then you received a blessing. If you disobeyed the law, then there was a curse. It really was this relationship mediated by law. Now, a question that I had as I was reading uh, this, this passage here in verse 4 and thinking about the storyline of the Bible is that after this, after these three verses that we're reading this morning, there was about 400 years of divine silence. For 400 years, the people of God wouldn't hear from God and God wouldn't speak to them until, the, the, uh, until John the Baptist came. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, why, of all the things that God could have said, why this? Why remind his people to obey the covenant? And I, I can't pretend to know the mind of God. His thoughts are far higher than my thoughts. His ways are far greater than my ways. But as I began to look at the Bible and began to ask that question and began to search, what is God's desire for his people? What comes next in the storyline of scripture? What is God really reminding his people of right here? I came to two various obvious conclusions. And the first one is this, that God loves his people. God reminded them to obey the covenant because he loves his people. And that's something that we can never forget, that God loves his people. And he wants what's best for his people. 
And he gave them this law because this, living this way was what was best for them. It was a way that honored him and it was what was best for them. For you and I, there is no best life. There is no blessed life apart from obedience to God and his word. If we desire to live a best and blessed life, then we must live in obedience to God and his word. And that's what God was reminding his people of. With the very last command of the Old Testament, remember my love for you, obey the commandments, receive my blessing. But then the second part, part of this, the other side of this, is with the last command, he reminds them, he's, he, he's telling them to remember the old covenant because there was a new covenant that was coming. Even with the, the very last command of the Old Testament, he is pointing us towards what is next. And what is next is a Messiah who is coming to, to complete the old covenant, to, to, to render it completed and to bring in and to usher in a new covenant, a new way for God to relate with his people. I love what uh, John says at the beginning of John, John chapter one, verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This old covenant was not gonna last forever. God's relationship with his people wasn't gonna be one that was forever mediated by a law and sacrificial systems and all these things we see in the Old Testament. It was gonna be mediated by a person, the man Christ Jesus, the God man who came to live and to die that we might receive forgiveness of sins. It wasn't a law that was based on my merit, but it's, it's, a, it's a covenant based on grace. It's based on Christ's merit and what Christ has done on my behalf. This was what God is pointing us to with the very last command of the Old Testament. He's pointing us and saying, there's one who's coming who is better than the one that was behind. This new covenant is better than what was before. And as we study this morning, I still believe that God's commands here in verse four of Malachi four are the same for us today, to remember God's word and to live in obedience to God's word because it tells us the best and blessed way to live but also to remember his word as it points us not only back to the one who has come, Christ, but it points us forward to his second coming when he will come again and he will make all things new. So this remember the law of my servant Moses, this remember the Mosaic law, this really serves as the, the remember the Alamo kind of moment for the Old Testament. It's the last word of the Old Testament, but it is by no means a final word because there's one who is coming. And this word, this command that God gives is one that's drenched with anticipation for that Messiah, the, the promised one of Genesis 3.15 to come and to make all things new and to bring in this new covenant, new way that God will relate to his people. And so it's teaching them to live with this anticipation. And that's the second way that we seek God. Second way this text teaches us to seek God is by anticipating the return of Christ. We seek God by anticipating the return of Christ. And here's what we read in verse five. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You know, Elijah was one of the key prophets to the nation of Israel uh, in, in Israel's history. And he came to Israel in a time where they were in spiritual chaos. Uh, it, the Israelites during that period were very far from God. And Elijah's message was to call them back to repentance. Come back to the Lord, turn from your sin, return to the Lord. And Elijah never saw death. Elijah was taken up into heaven. Uh, and you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 2. But the people, the Jews of Jesus' day understood that before the Messiah would come, before this promised Savior would come, Elijah would come and he would clear the path for the Lord. And John the Baptist is that, um, that, is that Elijah. He's an Elijah type. He's one who his ministry and even his, his personality seems to be very uh, paralleled with um, the prophet Elijah. Listen to what Jesus says about him in Matthew 17. 
The disciples asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was this Elijah type who came to prepare the way for the Lord. But what we read there in Malachi 4, 5 is that, that this Elijah type is going to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And we know that that great and awesome day of the Lord is a reference to the second coming of Christ, when he will return to judge the living and the dead. And so there's a, a part of Malachi 4, 5 that has already been fulfilled, but it's still a way today where it will yet be more fulfilled when the day that Christ returns. But the message for the people that were living on that side of Christ's coming or on this side of Christ's coming and waiting for his second coming it is still the same. The, the principle is still live with anticipation for this Messiah that's coming. God was telling his people, live with anticipation. This Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. You know, every year uh, I, I look forward with anticipation to the month of September. September is an important month for, uh, for me for a number of reasons. One, because it's my wife's birthday. Uh, Holly's birthday, and we get to celebrate her. It's also my dog's birthday, Theo, and we get to have a great time with him. Uh, but third, uh, September means that the NFL is back. And uh, I, I'm not a huge, like I, I like the Titans, but I'm not a huge NFL fan, but I am a huge fantasy football fan. I give way too much time and devotion to fantasy football. And I play in what's called a dynasty league, which means that I keep all of my players throughout the season. Uh, and so I live and spend most of my summer in anticipation for September because in, in September, actually really to the end of, beginning of August, we have a draft. And I will spend all kinds of time reading articles and researching players and trying to trade my picks around so that I can get the guys that I want. I, I live with anticipation for September because I'm waiting for all the work that I did in the offseason to pay off so that when December rolls around, I can win a championship again. So I live with anticipation for the month of September, and I, I want to reap the rewards of all of the, the hard work that I've sown leading up to that moment. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of a parable that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 25. It talks about the same kind of anticipation that followers of Christ are to live with. Matthew 25, Jesus says this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose, they trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there won't be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Jesus finishes this parable in verse 13, saying, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And there's a lot of thoughts as to what it will be like when Christ returned. What's the nature of the millennial kingdom? What are the sequence of events that lead up to it? Well, is there going to be a rapture? All these questions, all these things that we wonder and we think about, and we really don't know a whole lot of answers to, but one thing that we know is certain is that Christ is going to return. That King Jesus will come back for us, his people, and he's going to come back in physical bodily form. We are certain that he's going to come. So the question is not, is Christ going to return, but how are we going to be found when he does? How are we going to be found when Christ does return? 
Will we be found like, those, like the wise who are watching and waiting and they've prepared for this day when their bridegroom comes that they can go enter into the feast with him? Or will we be found like the foolish, unprepared, off chasing other things because we, we didn't prepare ourselves for the day that Christ returns? And my hope is that we would not only be found waiting for Christ, but that we would be found warning others also. There's a, a verse in Colossians 1.28. The Apostle Paul uh, writes this, and, and it's really his mission statement. It's what the Apostle Paul wanted to do with his life. And if anybody's looking for a life verse this morning, uh, I would encourage you to consider Colossians 1.28 as a, a life verse for you. But here's what he says. Him we proclaim. Christ we proclaim. Christ crucified. Christ risen. Christ reigning. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's goal in life was to lead people to Christ and to be able to present everyone, believers, and then those who have yet to believe that he prayed that will believe, that he shared with, that they might believe, to present everyone as mature believers in Christ. This isn't just a, a thing that pastors and missionaries and ministers and the, the, the Christian elite do. This is what we all do. We know that Christ is gonna return. And on the day that he does return, it will be too late to turn from sin. It'll be too late for our friends and our families and those we love to turn from sin. So as we wait, why not? What better is there to do with our time than to warn everyone about his coming, to proclaim Christ, to proclaim Christ crucified, to proclaim Christ is coming again, that we all might be mature in Christ, to spend our time, to leverage our lives, proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And it's our desire, just as it's our God's desire, that none should, reach, none should perish, but all should reach repentance. You know, there's so many of us that live in anticipation for things to come. Fantasy football is a silly illustration, but we live with anticipation of graduations and marriages and babies and birthdays and vacations and promotions. We live with these anticipations about good things to come. But do we live with anticipation for Christ and his return? Do our lives, are our lives lived in such a way that we show that we are longing for the return of our king and that when he comes, we're gonna be ready? Don't be foolish. Don't, don't anticipate everything else, but miss the most important thing. There's only one thing that matters and that is Christ is coming again. And if you're found in Christ, then be ready and be spending your life until he does come, making sure that everybody else knows about Christ and knows what he's done, that they too might be ready. Watch and warn. Those are, the, those are the things that we commit ourselves to as we wait in anticipation for our king to return. And then third and finally, citizens of the kingdom of God, we seek God by celebrating the work of the Holy Spirit. By celebrating the work of the Holy Spirit. In verse six, we read that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There's a whole lot of thoughts as to what this verse is referring to. Uh, there are some who believe that the, the fathers that are, uh, that are mentioned there, referenced there, are actually the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the children are the, the rebellious uh, Jews of the day. And that when this Elijah type returns, uh, when he comes, that he will, he will reconcile their love for God and they will be restored to, to a level of unity in their faith and their love for God. There are some who thinks that this points to the, the future restoration when Christ returns and he makes all things new and the redeemed get to live with him in a place of perfect peace forever. There's no more conflict. And even some others think that the word to 
that's there, that he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers is better translated as with, meaning that it's the, uh, a restoration of the nation of Israel back to God as a whole. You know, all of those have merit. All of those seem plausible. Only God really knows what that exactly means. But what is necessary for the fulfillment of any of those things, what is necessary for the fulfillment of Malachi 4.6 is a work of the Holy Spirit because only God can change the disposition of our hearts. See, the people of Israel had a, a problem. They had a heart problem. Their hearts were desperately sick. Jeremiah chapter 17 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, these, these people in, in Israel during Malachi's day, they didn't need more laws. They didn't need more rules. They had them. They ignored them. They didn't need more prophets who would come and tell them, this is what God says. This is what God wants for you. They had them. They ignored them. What they needed and what all of us, every person who has ever lived needs is a new heart. We need a heart transplant. You know, the Bible's filled with wonderfully good news and tragically bad news at the same time. And the tragically bad news is this, that every one of us have a, a spiritual heart condition called congenital heart disease. It's a, a spiritual form of that. It, it shapes our lives, shapes everything about our lives. Before our life, it shapes the way that um, our life is lived, our affections, our attitudes, our actions. It's something that we've inherited before birth, and it's something that we can't fix on our own. We really have a, a spiritual sickness, and it's called sin. And every one of our hearts are plagued with the sickness of sin. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God has made a way for us to receive a new heart. He's made a way for someone who is outside of us to remove our dead, cold, stony hearts to give us a new heart, a heart of flesh. And that's exactly what God promised all the way back in Ezekiel, that he would do this. That in the day that this, this new covenant was going to come to bear, that here's what would happen. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart. I love that. I will give you a new heart and the new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. God is saying that he's going to do that work in us, that spiritual heart transplant, taking out our hearts of stone, giving us a heart of flesh. And that is made possible only by the work of Christ. What we're going to celebrate next week at Easter is that Christ came. He lived the life that you and I could have never lived, a sinless, always faithful life to God. He died the death that you and I deserve, a, a rebel death. He was buried in a grave, but a grave could not keep our king. And three days later, he rose. And that's what we're going to celebrate next week at Easter. The greatest news of all of time is that this king, King Jesus, he reigns. And this king offers forgiveness of sin. He offers freedom from sin to any who will come and repent and trust in him for salvation. That's what we get to celebrate next week. And I want to just invite you to, to please, please, please take advantage of the opportunity that we have to invite people to come with us to Easter service next week. We're going to have five services in here. There's a service in the chapel. We've got services all over the place. And every single one of them is going to be about one thing, that Christ is risen from the grave, that there is new life and eternal life to be had in him. So please take advantage of the opportunity that we have. Invite friends, invite family members, invite those who don't yet know Christ. They're going to come and they're going to hear the gospel. And you can pray that God would give them hearts that would be softened to the gospel and that God would do the work that only he can do and give them a new heart and cause them to believe the good news of the gospel. That they would turn from sin and they would have a new life in Christ. Who knows, maybe that's the day that will not only change their life for, for this life, but it will change their life for the rest of eternity. What we're talking about here is this supernatural work that God does in us. He takes out the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. 
when you and I repent and believe the gospel, that's what's happening, is God is doing a supernatural work in our hearts. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about how when we, when we heard the word of truth and we believed the gospel of salvation, that our hearts are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's what we call a being born again, a born again Christian. Someone who's had that heart removed and given, been given a new heart, a heart that beats for Christ. And this is the wonderfully good news of the Bible, that Christ experienced this utter decree of destruction, this curse that God was saying is going to come to the, the people in Malachi's day if they don't turn. Christ experienced that, that decree of that curse on our behalf to reconcile rebellious sinners just like us back to our Heavenly Father. This is the greatest news that I have to share. This is the best news that we have to give to a world who's longing for hope in this life. So please take advantage of the opportunity we have next week to tell somebody and bring them with you. Because not only does God give us a new heart, but he also gives us his spirit. Look again at verse 27 of Ezekiel 36. This is the very next verse. He says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. But then he follows up and he says, and I will put my spirit within you. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. When God gives us a new heart, he also gives us himself. He gives us his spirit. And it's the spirit of God that's at work in us to, to, to equip us, to empower us, to live a life, to pursue God's design for us. That recover and pursue, that's made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul talks about in the New Testament how it's God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God does this work in our hearts. And if you remember what we read in Malachi 4.4, there was a commandment in the old covenant. Remember the law, obey the law, be faithful to the law. The people failed. But in the new covenant, when we get a new heart, it's no longer just remember the covenants. I'm going to give you my spirit who's going to cause you to have a desire to obey those things. It's not about obedience. It's about a new heart that's been given by Christ. And it's this new heart. It's out of this overflow, this new heart that we long to live for Jesus. We don't obey Christ in order to gain Christ. We obey because we love him. It's the new heart in us and it's the spirit at work within us that causes us to obey. And it's only because of the work of the Holy Spirit that we can have this new life, this change of heart. And so we gotta celebrate what God is doing. And that's exactly what we're gonna do next week. And I, I can't echo that enough. Please, please, please don't let this opportunity slip past for you to bring someone and introduce them to the Jesus who could change everything about their life. But as we finish up our time this morning, we've talked about seeking after God, remembering his word. We've talked about it by living in anticipation for the, the, the return of Christ. We've also talked about celebrating the work of the Holy Spirit. I've got a couple of questions that I'd like for you to reflect on. Whether you reflect on them today uh, or right now or sometime later this week, uh, it doesn't necessarily matter. But I've I got a couple of questions that I, I would like for you to reflect on. And the first one is this. What is the condition of my heart? What is the condition of my heart? Have I received a new heart by grace through faith in Christ alone? Or do you still have a cold, dead, sick with sin-filled heart? Have you experienced this being born again by a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit? And then secondly, am I seeking God? Am I seeking after God? You know, there are, there are times when as a Christ follower, we, we ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And though we may still be a Christ follower, we are a Christ follower. 
there are times when we are not walking in step with God. We're not seeking after God. And so the, the question for, for this person is, am I making a conscious choice to set my heart towards God? Am I fixing my eyes on Jesus? Or am I being just like the people were in Malachi's day, just hoping that if I do the right things, if I have the right structures, the right disciplines in my life, if I have all these things, it'll fix me. Are you seeking after God because you know that he's the only solution to make you healed and whole? Or are you seeking after other things? You know, as you do that, you may find that you have some things that you need to repent of. You may find some attitudes and some affections, some actions, some habits in your life that aren't consistent with what it means to be a follower of Christ. I want to encourage you to repent of those things. Or, or you may find that you still have a cold, dead heart. And, and, and I would encourage you to come to Christ and to ask him to give you a new heart and to change your desires, to give you a new life and eternal life. You know, I want to close with, with this from Isaiah 55. And this is for the, the Christian who is seeking God, who is longing for God, and you're doing good. This is a reminder of the character of our God. This is for the Christian who has wandered away from God and is pursuing and seeking after other things. This is a reminder of the character of our God. And this is for someone who is yet to know Christ, yet to become a Christian. This is true about our God. And I want to invite you to remember these things. This is a verse that I read uh, this week as I was doing my own Bible reading and, and study time. And I thought it was so encouraging. Here's what it says, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon and God's plan for his people has always been for us to seek him. It's always been for us to seek him. And no matter where you are in your life or where you have been in your life, the Lord says, there is complete pardon for all who will come to me. So whether you are a Christian that is walking with God, be encouraged. This is the character of our God. He shows compassion. Remind yourself of what Christ has done. Or if you're, if you're a Christian who's struggling to walk with the Lord right now, return to the Lord. Forsake all those other things. Come back to him. He will have compassion on you and he will abundantly pardon. And for you who have yet to come to Christ, he will abundantly pardon. It means that everything, past, present, future, sin, all washed away by the blood of Christ Jesus. This is the reminder for us today. Our God is not a judge who's anxious waiting to condemn us. He's a father who's willing to pardon, abundantly pardon all who will come and seek refuge in him. So seek after the Lord. Make it your aim to please Christ. Would you join me as we continue, or as we, we wrap up this morning in prayer? Father, we do thank you for the truth that you've revealed to us in your word today. We thank you for the humility that this word reminds us of. Lord, that, that there's nothing in us that deserves your pardon. There's nothing in us that deserves your compassion. There's nothing good at all inside of us. In fact, all of our hearts are, were at one point or still are cold, dead, far from you. We thank you, Lord, that you came to give us new hearts. And in the new covenant, because of the work of your son and in the power of your Holy Spirit, we are able to have a new heart. We're able to have a, a, a new spirit that guides us. We're able to experience salvation. And Lord, I pray that it would be our heart's desire that we would seek after you with all that we have in our being. Lord, you alone are, are worthy of the pursuit of our lives. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bring about conviction, that you would bring about repentance, that you would bring about encouragement. Help us to commit ourselves to seeking after you and longing to be in your presence. 
In your word, you tell us that in your presence, there is a fullness of joy. There's freedom from sin. There's forgiveness of sin. All of those things found in you and in you alone. There is nothing on this earth that can satisfy us, only you. So please help us to seek after you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work that you do in us each and every day, sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus the Son. We praise you, God, for all that you have done for us, and we thank you for the the work that you will do this week in our hearts as you shape us and mold us according to your word, that we may be a people who are complete, found faithful, waiting for our Savior upon his return. We love you, Lord, and we're so grateful for the time we've had this morning to worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.